Lord and Father, we ask that this morning that you would quiet our hearts, uh, that you would uh, humble us uh, beneath your word as we seek to hear what you have to say to us uh, this morning. Uh, We pray, Lord, uh, that what we know not, that you would teach us, what we have not, that you would give us, that what we are not, that you would make us. It's uh, in your son's name and for his sake that we pray this. Amen. Growing up, uh, there, in my teenage years, uh, there were a few moments that seemed to me as momentous and important as the day uh, that I looked forward to of when I would get my driver's license. I see some young people in here. Maybe uh, you have recently celebrated uh, the receiving of that little plastic important card that says, I can drive in a car legally. Um, Maybe you're a little bit younger than that, and that's something that you are eagerly anticipating and looking forward to. Uh, Maybe that is many years behind you, um, but I'm sure that most of us that can drive remember um, how important that seemed to us at the time that uh, this little card, this little identification was something that would open up to us a world of possibilities. I remember that as I waited as a 15-year-old, you would have thought I was under some strange form of house arrest, the way that I behaved around my house, the way that I bargained and pleaded with my older brother to take me anywhere, uh, to drive me in his car uh, wherever I needed to go. And that, that fateful day when I received my license, I knew that because of this card, um, a new world had opened up to me. As we read the book of Romans this morning, Paul is very much talking about a new identification that we have that opens up a world of privileges and benefits to the Christian. Paul in the book of Romans is masterfully developing what it means essentially that unrighteous people can be considered righteous because of what Jesus has done how the unrighteous can be made righteous on account of the person and work of Jesus. And if you were to track kind of Paul, what he's doing through the second half of chapter one, he's developing how unrighteous we actually are. And in the middle of chapter three, he declares this new righteousness that's been made available uh, through our justification, this righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. And then beginning here in chapter five, it's as though Paul is shifting gears from declaring what this righteousness actually is made available to us in Jesus to then from chapter five on into eight and onward, what it looks like to actually enjoy this righteousness. He's spoken and developed to what it means that our identification is those who are justified And now, out of that identification flows this new experience and all of these joys. So this morning, as we begin this new section of how Paul talks about enjoying our justification, uh, we see in here in these 11 verses uh, the joys of justification, the benefits of being identified as a saved sinner. I think it's timely to study a passage like this because we've come away from Good Friday and Easter Sunday just this past week where we considered the death of Jesus, his sacrificial death upon the cross for us, and the fact that three days later he was raised in this new life that is found in Jesus Christ, that if we are united to him, everything that Jesus is, everything that he has done, and all that he is for us now 
It's ours if we're in Christ. It's ours if, you, if we're united to him by faith. So as we study these verses this morning, my hope is that you are a justified sinner, that you have put your faith in Jesus. But even if you're not, maybe you are skeptic about faith or maybe you've never actually made that decision for whatever reason, I hope that you'll pay attention and listen this morning and see how good it is to trust in Jesus and how it's not just this thing that happened in the past, this isolated occurrence, but what Jesus has done for us has abiding consequence for all of our life. And there are great joys to being justified. As we walk through this passage together, I see six uh, different benefits or joys of justification. And so together, as we look at these verses, uh, you can just track along with me here. The first benefit or the first joy of justification is that we get peace. You can see this in verse one. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the world that we live in, which is increasingly restless, increasingly polarized, increasingly contentious in all sorts of matters, we are all too aware of how peace, being at peace, is becoming an increasingly rare uh, and scarce commodity. Even if you're not a Christian, you, we know this universal desire and pursuit of peace that characterizes so much of how people live. We see people reaching for peace from everything to yoga classes to essential oils. At a larger scale, we see in our world, in our nation, uh, wars and uh, political issues, uh, these programs through which people believe that they're going to achieve some kind of peace. And whether you're a parent this morning who is on the brink of insanity trying to parent your kids, or whether you are a teenager who is wrestling with unwanted and intrusive thoughts creeping into your mind on a regular basis, or whether you're a single person who's just dissatisfied with your lot in life, all of us to some degree can identify with this longing for peace, this desire to just know that everything is okay. We wanna feel okay. I hope that you have an acute awareness of that longing as you read these passages here, this passage here this morning and what is offered to us in the gospel here because better than just that feeling of peace that we long for, Paul is offering us not just something that is a subjective feeling, but he welcomes us into this objective reality in which we receive the peace of God because we are at peace with God. See, that's an important distinction to make because as we look at all of the horizontal unrest and lack of peace in the world that we live in, what the Bible tells us and the diagnosis it gives us is that all of our horizontal mess is because vertically we have a problem with God. We don't have world peace because we have a world that is not at peace with God. And so the, every fault line and every fracture that we see in our lives and in the world, we can trace it back to fundamentally the very bottom of our own hearts, the fundamental problem of sin. It is because we are uh, at odds with God that we live in a sinful and broken world. Paul tells us earlier on in Romans, or later on in Romans 8, he says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The world would say that, you know, I'm, I'm neutral to God. I kind of, God is fine, you know, religion is a fine thing, but I'm just kind of my own deal. No, the Bible tells us that we are either 
hostile to God and enemies of God, or we are his friends, and there is no in-between. In Ephesians, Paul describes uh, those who do not believe as those who follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he says, you were by nature children of wrath. And even later on in this passage, he describes us as being once enemies of God. Yet through the death and resurrection of Jesus, one of the greatest benefits of the gospel is that in and through what God has done, in and through his son, God makes his enemies his friends. And he, through this wonderful ministry of reconciliation, takes those who are opposed to him and draws them back to himself. Colossians 1.20 says this, through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the justified sinner standing before God enjoys this objective reality. Hear this, that in this moment and at any given moment of your life, that if you are in Christ, And if you are united to him by faith, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. And there is nothing that you can do or say to make him love you any less. Because if you are a justified, saved sinner, when God looks at you, he does not see your human accomplishments or your merit or your fears or your failings. What he sees is his son's perfect righteousness credited to your account. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus' robe of righteousness wrapped around our shoulders, and it covers up anything that we can say or do, both good and bad. And it's because of that robe of righteousness that God accepts us, that he is pleased with us in very much the exact same way that he is pleased with his precious son. And that is the way that we have become at peace with God. And all of the peace and harmony that the Son of God has enjoyed with his Father on into eternity, if you're united to him by faith, you get all of that peace and harmony for yourself. In Christ, you can be at peace with God. St. Augustine said it right when he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless unless they find their rest in you. I promise you that if you have that longing for peace, that feeling that you so badly want in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in the world, in politics, you will long for that endlessly. And if you look for it in all these different places, you will never be completely satisfied until you can say of yourself, I am at peace with the God who made me in and through what Jesus has done for me. That is the only true peace that we can find in this life. So we get peace with God, and then we see in verse two that the second benefit that we receive is that we get access to his grace. We get access, that's at the beginning of this second verse. While our peace with God is this relational reality that has been won through our justification, the second benefit is a kind of positional reality says we have access to faith, and now because of this access, we stand in grace. We've gained access to a realm where we were once restricted. 
That language of access that when the original Jewish audience who would have been living in Rome at the time, when they heard that, it very likely would have evoked images of the temple. When you thought about access uh, to God, you thought about that inner sanctum, that holy of holies, that special place uh, where God's presence dwelt. And in the temple, we know that there was that massive curtain that hung between the, the inner part of the sanctuary and the holy of holies. And there was this curtain that restricted the people, only the most purest of the pure, the high priest, could enter into this space after incredible uh, methods of having to purify himself to prove the point to the people that because you are sinful and because I am holy, you cannot come in here. And this restricted access to God was the thing that the people of God so desperately wanted, but yet because of their sin, they were always getting in their own way and they, they were always barred entrance to God's presence. We saw this from when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Those two angels guarded the way and said, you can't come in. We saw this in the tabernacle, the very inner part of the tabernacle, you cannot come in. And in the temple, you cannot come in. But all of that changes when Jesus, our great high priest, on Good Friday, dies a sinner's death upon a cross, though he was innocent. And when he uttered those final dying words, it is finished, what happened in the temple? That massive curtain was torn from top to bottom, torn from top to bottom so that everyone knew who had torn that curtain so that the people of God who once couldn't enter into God's presence through the blood of Jesus could now enjoy the presence of God and the grace of God. What was once an impassable restriction, now to the people of God comes an open invitation to anybody who through the blood of Jesus would walk into the presence of God. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 says, we now, rather than fearing the holy place, because once, for if you did anything that transgressed these very strict and purposeful rules of not entering into God's presence with sin, people were fearful of actually the moment they would that they would drop dead. But now the writer to the Hebrews says, we actually don't have fear, but confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. We're ushered in through the curtain into this domain of grace where we are forever and permanently standing. If you are a Christian and if you are in Christ, you are always in a state of grace. Not because of what you can do or don't do, but because you are united by faith to Jesus who always stands in grace and whoever perfectly and relationally and positionally dwells perfectly with his Father. And we are tied and united to this Jesus and it's because of his righteousness that we forever stand in grace. And we need that reminder, don't we? Because we have this natural default thing in our hearts that feels like I might be sinning my way out of God's grace, or I need to do a little bit more and be a little bit better so that I can be sure that Jesus loves me, that the God the Father accepts me. But because justification, by definition, can't have anything to do with what I can do and everything to do with what Jesus has done, 
I can be confident that I am always perfectly and permanently positioned in the grace of God because I'm united to Jesus. And when he said it is finished, he said that because his work was done and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So we have access into his grace through Jesus. We have peace, we get access. Thirdly, we get hope. Well, these first two benefits are grounded uh, very uh, purposefully in our past reality of being justified. The third benefit is grounded in this future implication of our justification. As we look at what Paul is doing here in Romans 5, 1 through 11, he's actually, I think, giving us a really practical example of kind of a, a pattern of how we should always be thinking about the Christian faith that as we look at our present circumstances, the pattern and the rhythm of the Christian life is to constantly be looking back to seeing what has God done for me and then looking forward and asking what has he promised that he will do on into the future. Now, the problem for us is that we, in the midst of our circumstances and our struggles and our sinful self-centered perspectives, we have our noses down in our suffering, in the mess of our lives, in the, the, the things that overwhelm us. And we lock into this myopic, uh, circumstance-driven, self-centered view of the, the world where we never lift our eyes to go, look at what God has done and look at what he's promised he's going to do. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here, is he's telling us in the middle of wherever you are, we have this future hope set out before us that we can be absolutely certain of. Perhaps the thing that is most likely to cause us to lock into focusing only on the present, having that spiritual amnesia that forgets what God has done, doesn't look forward to the future, more often than not, it is when we're suffering, when we're going through something difficult and we cannot figure out for ourselves exactly why it is that God would allow us to go through something like this. And you begin to have those creeping thoughts to go, does God even know what I'm going through right now? Because if he does know, it doesn't seem like he even cares. And if he does know, and if he does care, then is he really in control? And we begin to have those thoughts. And uh, what Paul wants us to do as we look at the, the, the whole trajectory of our faith and our lives, and even beyond that into eternity, how even in the midst of our suffering, and actually because of our suffering, we can have confidence in this future hope of glory. And it's interesting because suffering is the hardest thing for us, and it's the thing that Paul actually starts with as he's listing the benefits of justification and how we can actually have hope. The reason that we wouldn't probably list suffering as the first benefit of our salvation is because suffering often prevents us from enjoying what we would perceive as being the glorious life. Because the kind of future hope and glory that maybe in our bad moments that we long for is a life where everything's going just the way that we want, where we don't have any suffering, uh, where things are going well, where we're comfortable. But I hope you see here that Paul has a very different idea of what true glory actually is. And I promise you that it is better than our natural desire for our own glory. Far from being something that diminishes our hope of glory, Paul describes suffering as something that contributes to it. 
and something that we can actually rejoice in. Now look at here at this pattern that Paul says, this progression, a logical progression that starts with our suffering for the Christian. He says that suffering inevitably leads to or produces endurance. Suffering leads to endurance. It reminds us of what James wrote in chapter one of his letter where he says that you can consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. It's a very simple picture that we see in any time that you would exercise or lift weights, you're breaking down a muscle in order that it might actually be built back up stronger than it was before. Paul is saying that's exactly what suffering does to us. It hurts and it's difficult, but it's a breaking down that God uses to build us back up. And the building back up, that endurance that is produced, in turn produces character. And this character that results from endurance is ultimately spiritual maturity. It's Christ-like character. It's through these trials and through this painful uh, shaping and molding that God, through these things, is actually making us more like Jesus. Which gets us back to why the suffering is so intimately connected to glory. What he says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because the ultimate glory and the ultimate future hope of the Christian is not when their life is necessarily rid of all the things uh, that we would prefer to get out of it, but it's the future day when each one of us will be like Christ, when we will, as justified sinners, be sanctified and one day glorified, that when we see him as he is, we'll be like him. And if justification is this matter of a righteousness that is credited to our account, this declaration that we're righteous... We know that right now, that although we are declared righteous in Christ, that our life is still muddied and messy with the presence of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin, but we still deal with its presence. The future hope of the Christian is that one day, even the presence of sin will be rooted out of our lives, and we, just like Jesus, will be completely and totally righteous. And if the process of moving towards that, if it's the different ways that God causes to root sin out of our lives and to shape us into Jesus, we see the ways that suffering is often, though painful, the ways that God does make us more like Jesus. Think back on your own life and the moments where you've grown the most, in the times where you found yourself praying the most and casting all your cares upon Jesus like you never have before. It's usually in circumstances that if it were up to you, you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. But God in his wisdom and sovereignty always gives us what is best, even when it's things that hurt. And this hope for the Christian is that even through the pain, the discomfort, and even through tears, you can rejoice because you know that because of your justification, the best is yet to come we have the future hope of glory that we will one day look like Jesus. So we get this hope and fourthly, we get love. We see this in verses five through eight. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. His love has been poured into our hearts. I wonder if there are some of you here uh, this morning who have had the experience of in your life 
a relationship in which you feel like you're always at risk of losing that person's love or their approval. Maybe for some of us, it's a parent who you feel like you've never been good enough, never been able to earn their approval. And so it feels like your life is on constant audition to finally do something that will make them proud. Maybe it is a romantic relationship that you've been in in the past or that you're in now where you feel like you're always trying to live up to some standard and trying to maintain that standard so that person won't leave. To some degree, we can all understand um, how difficult that can be and how it produces a kind of uh, anxiety in us and a, and a lack of assurance and fear uh, for the future. And I wonder that if that's you and you've experienced that, you can see the simple ways that we can project that kind of thinking into our relationship with God. That God the Father becomes kind of this withholding Father that is always waiting to see how well we're going to perform. And you look at God and you say, I'm always just trying to be good enough that maybe I'll be good enough to please him. If that is you, I hope that you see so clearly in this passage such a drastically different picture of how God looks at you if you are in Christ. Because God the Father, the way that he feels towards me has nothing to do with my subjective and imperfect and failing love that I show to him. But it has everything to do with God's objective and perfect love that he has demonstrated towards me in his son. And you see that here in the verses that follows. To, to argue for his point, he says, look at Jesus and look at the cross. For while we were still weak, verse six, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To make this point, Paul is saying, at your very worst, when you had nothing to offer God, when you were a sinner, when you were hostile towards him, when you were an enemy, that is when God shows the ultimate expression of love and sacrifice towards you, when you have nothing to give him in return. At the right time, Christ dies, not for the, the friend, for the person who's trying their hardest, for the person who passed the test, but for the ungodly and rebellious and hell-bound sinner. That's the one that Jesus dies for. It's so counter to human nature, so different from our experiences of love. Paul makes this point. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though per perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I'm sure that most of us in this room, if push came to shove, we would look at our, the people who we love the most, our family, our spouse, our kids, our parents, and we would go, I would be willing to lay my life down for you. I'm sure we don't even realize how difficult in the moment that would actually be, but we would be willing to do that because we love those people and because all that they bring into our lives. But how many of us could honestly say that you'd be willing to die for a stranger? Or not even a stranger, a criminal, or a murderer, or someone who has done you great harm? If we are honest about that question, we would go, I, I could not make that sacrifice because it offers me nothing in return. And God makes the point, and Paul makes the point here about what God has done, how incredible it is that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us 
And this was done in order to demonstrate that his magnificent and marvelous and matchless love is 100% all of grace. He died for sinners so he could prove that there was nothing that we could do in return. We freely receive all of his love with nothing in our hands. And because it's all of grace and because it's freely received, God is the one who gets all the glory. I love the way that Paul says that it's the love of God is poured out upon us. Perhaps even in contrast to that faulty idea that God is meagerly portioning out love towards us as much as he thinks that we deserve it or as much as we can earn it or as much as maybe just on that day, on a whim, he just wants to give us a little portion of love. If you are in Christ, all of the love that God has for his son is forever and perpetually poured out upon you because you are united to, G to Jesus, his beloved son. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The life of the Christian is lived forever, plunged beneath that flood and living in the grace of Jesus and the love and the pleasure of God. We receive his love, and next we see that we receive his assurance, the fifth benefit of justification. Assurance is this confidence or certainty that we can have in the present of what will eventually unfold on into the future. The assurance that flows out of our justification and certainty is the certainty that because God has saved us, we can know that he will save us. What we see here in this passage and is all over the Bible is this thing that we would often refer to as the already not yet of salvation. There's this reality that we live in of what God has already done. The victory over sin and death has been won. The work is finished. But we live in this in-between period where God has done the most important thing of dying for our sins and rising from the grave, but we await his second coming when he will consummate all of his work once and for all. It's what we said before, that we've been delivered from the power of sin, but we still wait for the day when he will completely eradicate the presence of sin. And as we live in the tension of this already, not yet, the temptation in that is that we might fear that God might not actually finish what he has started. That we look at our lives and we look at the ups and downs of trying to follow him and we go, I don't actually think I'm gonna make it. It would seem that uh, God has kinda, I was a project that he started that he kinda tossed aside and he's not going to finish. Those doubts creep into our minds and we start to think that we've sinned ourselves out of his grace we don't remember all these promises that Jesus is coming back. And sometimes you just look at things and they seem so bad that we can't imagine how God's going to fix it. We'll look here in verse nine and see Paul's simple argument that would dispel any of those doubts, the moments that you really understand what this means. Verse nine, he makes a simple argument arguing from the greater to the lesser. He says, since we have been justified by his blood, how much more, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The point that Paul is making here is that the hard part is already done. In God's amazing, 
far-reaching plan of salvation, God has already done the hardest thing in paying the greatest cost of giving his very own son to die for us. This is, when we really begin to understand what this means, we will understand how precious this is and how this very idea is the very ground and foundation of this assurance for the future. I heard one pastor uh, illustrate it like this and I found it very helpful. You imagine someone takes you to, uh, a very generous friend takes you to the car dealership, Mercedes Benz, and they say, I'm going to buy you the most expensive car on this lot, 100%, it's a gift, they purchase it for you, hundred something thousand dollars. Uh, they pay for it. The down payment is there. And at the very end of the deal, the salesman comes to the, the benefactor and says, uh, for 50 bucks, I can throw one of those nice big red ribbons on the hood of the car. And to that suggestion, uh, the person who's buying you this car just flips their lid and they say, $50 for a ribbon? And they storm out and they don't complete the purchase because this suggestion was so absurd to them. That's obviously a story that would never happen because if someone is generous enough to purchase that kind of a gift for you, something, $50 relatively in comparison to this great price, it's nothing. So how much more when we think about what God has done for us in Jesus, what he was willing to give for us to secure our salvation, how much more in the relatively easy things that are left to do can we not be confident that he's going to carry us all the way home? Someone with those resources and that generosity, of course, that if they were willing to shed this precious blood for us, how can, how, if he did this for us while we were his enemies, how much more will he carry us through when we are his children, his sons and daughters, his friends? Look at verse 10. If we were reconciled to him through what he did on Good Friday, how much more will we be saved by his victorious resurrection life that we celebrated last Sunday? How much more will our living and reigning and interceding Savior deliver us once and for all from this wrath of God that we deserve, yet on the cross he himself absorbed and endured and satisfied? If you fear the wrath to come, the wrath that is deserved on account of our sin, where do we look? We look back to the cross where that very wrath that we ought to fear was completely and totally poured out and absorbed by Jesus upon the cross. It gives us great confidence and hope and assurance for the future. When the doubts and the fears and the accusations of the evil one inevitably creep into our hearts and our minds and our lives, Every time the first place that we must go are to the holes in Jesus' hands and his sides and the blood that was poured out for us on the cross. Hear this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, when I know that Christ is the one real sacrifice for my sins, that his work on my behalf has been accepted by God, that he is my heavenly intercessor, then his blood is the antidote to the poison in the voices that echo in my conscience, condemning me for my many failures. Indeed, Christ's shed blood chokes them into silence. May for each of us, even as we doubt today, appeal and plead the blood of Jesus 
and it will silence every accuser and every doubt. So we have seen in Paul here that we have received peace with God, access to grace, hope for the future, love poured into our hearts, assurance of final salvation. And lastly, and I think climactically here, Paul in verse 11 summarizes these benefits of salvation with the greatest one of all, is that in our justification, we can rejoice in God himself. We get God himself. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If I asked you right now, um, why is it, if you're married, why is it that you married your spouse? Maybe don't answer out loud, but just think in your head uh, the reasons why you married the person you married. Some of the answers that I think most of us would hope that we maybe wouldn't answer by is saying, I married them because of all of their money. Or I married them because I wanted to move into their house. Or I married them because I hoped that maybe they could give me a bunch of kids. Now, while all of those things may certainly be the benefits of this marriage relationship that you have, we know that those aren't good things to motivate us to get married in the first place because we know that that falls short of what true loving marriage relationship should actually look like. No, you married your spouse for their own sake because you love them, because you wanted him, because you wanted her. That's the picture of what love is. We don't love people for the things that they can give us. We love them for themselves. Friends, the greatest joy and the supreme benefit of belonging to Christ is knowing that he in turn belongs to us. That by faith, we enter into this relationship where everything that Christ is, everything that Jesus has done, everything that belongs to him that's been given to him by the Father, it's all wrapped up in him. And it all, in being united to him, belongs to us. But it is Jesus Christ himself who we get in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first question in the Westminster Catechism asks this, this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the reason that you were made. When God knit you together, the very purpose that he is endued and imbued in who you are is that you would live for him and know him and be loved by him. You were made for a relationship with God that you might enjoy him by glorifying him. And it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can do the very thing that God made us to do, to be the kind of people who he made us to be. I hope that you understand the vast implications of what that actually means for your life. For those of you in this room, just as your elder prayed, for those who are suffering and going through hard times, if you have Christ, you have everything that you need, even if life takes everything else away from you. That wrapped up in Jesus, you have everything you need for life and godliness. He has provided everything for you. It's what Paul says, in Romans 8, that, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, even death, nothing in life, even spiritual forces. If you have Jesus, you have everything, and you will never want again. 
And it is that joy, that satisfaction, that confidence that is part and parcel of belonging to Jesus, being justified by his righteousness, and living with him and for him forever. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, I can be one who has nothing yet possesses everything. If you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, this peace, access, hope, love, assurance, and God himself belong to you in Jesus. Rejoice in that today. Rejoice in that in the midst of your sufferings. If you do not know Jesus, peace, hope, access, love, assurance, and God are offered to you this morning, free and available to you, with empty hands. This morning, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Receive this free gift and enjoy all of the joys of justification. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we bless you and thank you that you have made these great privileges available to us in and through your Son. We thank you for the ways that we see Paul here pointing us away from ourselves and towards you, pointing us back to the past and what you've done and forward to the future and what you will do. And I just pray for this, this church gathering here, the people that make up Pennington Park, that the work and the person of Jesus would be their great confidence today. It would be where they find their peace, their hope, their love, their assurance, their confidence. And we thank you um, that for anyone who belongs to Jesus, all those things are things we can enjoy every day for the rest of our lives on into eternity. It's in your son's name that we pray this. Amen.